Hello and welcome to another Emyth Your Business podcast. I'm Karen Iwata, your host. We're really happy and pleased today to continue our series of discussions with our friend, entrepreneur, and author, John Warlow, who's just written a great book called Built to Sell, and it's all about how to sell your business. In it, he describes eight simple but necessary steps for creating a sellable business. And you can check out our previous podcasts uh, with John where we've discussed the first three steps of this process. Today, we're going to focus on step number four, which is stop accepting other projects. Uh, This was a a really uh, important one, I thought, uh, and one that seems simple on the surface, but John is going to spend some time talking about some of the... um, the tips and the pitfalls of taking on other uh, projects and then transitioning to not taking them on so that you're in a better position to sell your business. John, welcome. Thanks, Karen. Nice glad, to to, glad to have you back again. So before we jump in to uh, this particular step of not accepting other projects that may seem to be wise because they might bring some immediate revenue. Um, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just sort of review the the first three steps that lead up to the point where you can finally say, I don't need these other projects. They're really going to get in my way of creating a sellable business, um, and, and therefore, I need to have completed these first three steps first. So why don't you review those steps for us, and then we'll we'll jump into the topic at hand. Sure. So built to sell is about how do you build a business that you could sell if you want to sell next month or next year or 10 years down the road. It's, it's nice to know that you could sell your business if you wanted to. And, and I outline eight steps, as you mentioned, and the first three we've tackled in the past, but I'll give you a summary. Essentially, the first step is to identify a product or service that has scale and scalable products uh, are repeatable, teachable, and valuable. Quick example, we talked about last time, the photographer who really doesn't scale their, their practice because they're you know, too busy doing all sorts of different photography, wedding pictures, uh, t-ball tournaments, and so forth. Whereas in contrast, there's a company called the School Photography Company that, that just does school photography. And it's repeatable because we need school photographs done every year. It's teachable because you, know, you don't have to be a famous Ansel Adams photographer to take a school photograph. And it's valuable because principals you know, and headmasters want uh, someone who's good at getting kids in and out of a school quickly. So the school photography company has identified their product, which is scalable. But most photographers, unfortunately, have not. And so the, the challenge to most listeners on the phone right now is to figure out what, which of your products or services scale. And uh, it may be a small, small percentage of your business, but that's really the nugget that gives you the platform to build a scalable company. Once you've built a scalable company, the second step in the process um, is to start charging up front. And I know a lot of people are going to hear that and say, well, that, yeah, that's crazy. I can't possibly charge up front. But remember, the first step is to find a product or service that's both valuable to your customers and repeatable. And if you're isolating the product that is most valuable to your customers and repeatable, you've got customers that are seeking you out for something that they have to purchase again and again and again. And with those two criteria, valuable and, t- uh, and repeatable, you'll find that the balance of power switches a little bit. So you can start charging either totally up front or at least a portion of your revenue up front. Um, and the third step, of course, is once you have that scalable product, 
is to is to fire yourself as the rainmaker for your business. Most business owners are, of course, their number one salesperson. Uh, but you've got to replace yourself as a salesperson uh, if you're going to successfully sell your business and make it more sellable. And so that's really about hiring salespeople. So those are the first three steps you need to go through. Again, pick a product or service that scales uh, by identifying the, the, uh, a product that has a teachable, repeatable, and valuable elements to it. Number two, put yourself on a positive cash flow model by charging up front because you've got more leverage to do that. And number three, um, hiring salespeople to kind of replace yourself as the number one rainmaker. Perfect. Okay, so with that, if you have those three things in place, um, you're charging up front, and so you've got a revenue stream that you can count on. You've got cash flow that you can actually uh, project and, and predict. So I would think that for many it would be, well, if that's working really well, why not add a few other revenue streams and increase overall revenue over time. But you're saying this is a bad idea. So why don't you tell us why you think that that is going to fly in the face of your being able to actually sell the business at some point in time? Sure. Because when an acquirer looks at at acquiring a business, they're really asking themselves three questions. Number one, does this business have something that we could build or, or could build quickly and cheaply ourselves? Number two, how much would it cost us to, to do that? And number three, can we buy this business? If you are doing lots of different things, um, think of the photographer who does wedding pictures and t-ball tournaments and, 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 and child uh, pictures. The, the competitor, the acquirer is going to look at that business and say, well, we can just compete. We can lower our price. We can hire salespeople to go after that business. But if you're the world's greatest company at taking school photographers, the barriers to entry into that business actually are much higher. And so when an acquirer looks at a business, they're going to say, can I make it myself or or is it just cheaper to buy that business? And if you've diversified in too many different product lines, that acquirer is, is most likely only going to want one of your product lines. And so we'll only value one of the things that you do. And as a result, you'll take a much, much lower price for your business than if you had really focused on one product. Let me give you a very specific example and one that's very recent. Uh, There's a social networking company that's competing with Facebook and Google in the social networking space called Aardvark. And Aardvark is is a business where it allows you to get very specific questions answered uh, to very specific uh, questions that you have using your social network. So, for example, if you are in New York City and you've got a kink in your neck and you want to find a chiropractor in New York, Aardvark allows you to ask your friends and friends of friends who's a trusted chiropractor in New York because you know, I'm traveling there and I don't know who's good to use. Aardvark was just acquired by Google for $50 million. And the reason they were acquired is because all they did was one thing social networking, answers to very obscure questions from your friends and friends of a friend's network. Mm. And if Google could, Google could have built it on their own, but they said, you know what, it'll be cheaper and faster just to buy Aardvark. But if Aardvark had made the mistake of also being in the traditional social media space and diluting themselves by trying to compete with Facebook, they would A, have been a pale in comparison to Facebook, and B, not as attractive an acquisition candidate for Google. You know, there's an old expression, uh, narrow your focus to broaden your appeal. And that could not be more true when it comes to trying to get acquired. People 
acquirers want to buy a company that is the world's best at doing one thing really, really well. So it's really a, a very fundamental shift in your thinking that you have to keep your eye on the long-term objective, which is to sell your business as opposed to the short-term gain, perhaps, of adding these revenue streams, which I, I imagine often come along because a, a client or a customer has a request for something, and you might not be providing that particular product or service at the moment, but, but you, you, know, you think that there's an opportunity there, and so you go for it. So it's really being very strategic in the way that you approach all of this. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's the single hardest part in my experience, my personal experience, in creating a business you could sell. You know, in, um, I used to own a market research firm, and so we did focus groups and uh, telephone surveys. We were the guys that interrupted your, your dinners. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we were in a very unscalable business. But in 2004, I went to try to sell my company and was told that it was not sellable because it was too dependent on me personally. And so I personally went through a lot of the first steps that I described, trying to isolate a product or service that had those scale you know, components to it. And I identified that in my case, I know this is just one example, but the one element of my business that was scalable was conferences that we produced. And so we decided to focus on doing conferences. And I, you know, I went through all the process uh, I hired salespeople. I started charging up front for the conferences, but I didn't fully commit to the new model. So I went to all my customers and I said, we'd like you to you know, use us for conferences. And they said, well, that's nice, John, but I also like you know, the focus groups that you ran for us. And we also like the f- work that you do over here on telephone surveys. And because I gave them the option of doing it the old way, they wouldn't go there with me on the conferences, and they continued to use us for quantitative research, telephone servers, and focus groups. It wasn't until I had the courage of conviction to turn off the telephone surveys and the focus groups did my customers change their tune. Did they realize that I was serious about focusing on a single product? And then the, the dynamic of those conversations changed almost overnight. Mm-hmm. They went from, you know, we'd rather do business with you on telephone surveys to, okay, if all you're giving us is the option to buy conferences, let me, let me better understand these conferences. and Let me better understand how, um, you know, I can use these conferences. And what I found was that for every hundred, you know, clients we went to, to say, we're not doing the old stuff anymore. All we're doing is conferences. You know, 95 customers, once I didn't give them the option or the out, 95 of them agreed to do business with us in the new way. And for the five that said no, um, you know, we probably got 10 new clients because, you know, they had heard through, through friends and through the grapevine that there was this conference business that specialized in this one little area of conferences. So again, never underestimate, in my view, how, how powerful being a specialist can be as a referral engine. And, and, you know, there's an old expression, you got to get your foot off first base to steal second. Mm-hmm. Terrible sports baseball analogy, but I found it in my business to be absolutely true. I never got, you know, my customers and my employees to take me seriously that we were going to do one thing until I turned off the other things. Well, you know, I was just going to ask you about that, um, about employees and about your team. Um, I mean, we've all probably experienced this at one time or another where there are so many new projects going on that the team itself 
can't really focus on what they need to do or they're spread so thin that none of the projects really get the kind of traction that they need. So there's another downside internally within the organization of taking on lots of these um, adjunct projects, right? Absolutely. And, and the cost, it, uh, the internal cost can be oftentimes the most expensive. My, you know, in the research company, to finish that analogy, you know, we had uh, lots of clients who had custom projects that weren't scalable products. And those custom products always took priority because they had deadlines and they had customers yelling and screaming saying, where's my project? And so, um, employees always gravitated towards those custom projects, which are tough to scale and ultimately mm-hmm. make your business unsellable um, because customers are asking for them. Not only that, employees, like in many cases, at least my employees, had what I called shiny ball syndrome. You probably heard that expression where they just like the new, new thing, mm-hmm. right? The, mm-hmm. the new and shiny thing. And oftentimes that's the new client coming in the door with a new project and the exciting new work. But it comes at the expense of working on the business that you sh- you know that that is ultimately sellable, and that is the, the business that has the scalable product. So, the cost, in my view, is too high to run you know both businesses in parallel. Your your old kind of um, unscalable business and, and the new scalable business, because not only do customers view your your business is not totally committed to any one model. But boy, your employees, at least in my case, really smelt a rat <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and would, you know, would not uh, really see how, how committed I was. When I went to my employees and said, look, we're going to turn off the research business and just do conferences, you know, a few of them said, well, you know, that's not what I signed up to do. Like, how can, you know, how can you turn the business? And I, you know, I went to school to do research and I said, you know, I appreciate that, but you know, we've got to focus on becoming the world's experts at one thing. And, 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 and we lost some employees by making that switch, but the ones who stayed were galvanized by the opportunity to work for a company that, that was going to really try to do something um, impactful and try to be really good at one thing. And, and, there, and there's, you know, employees take enormous pride, of course, in being involved in a company that has, you know, that, that's really recognized the world over as doing one thing really well, and so for for all those employees who left, we, you know, we had a much more uh, impassioned or passionate mm-hmm. workforce for those that stayed. So uh, you know, in your book too, I'm I'm going to quote you actually because I had a question about this. Um, you say that the mixture of revenue from both your standard service offering and the project work uh, determine to the acquirer that you're just another service business. Um, I imagine that there are a lot of uh, listeners who have service businesses, and they're wondering, well, what, what's wrong with being a service business? So can you say a little bit more about that versus what I think I'm hearing uh, with regard to being a more specialized service business? Specialized and scalable. And scalable. Um, so when a company acqu- acquires your business, they're going to try to assess quickly in the conversation, are you a traditional service business where the employees are the major assets, or are, are, do you really have a product or some tangible assets that they can buy that are not dependent on employees? And if you fall into the first bucket, your valuation is much lower. The price you get for your business is much lower, number one. Number two, you are forced into a long in many cases, arduous earnout, where 
the, the acquirer will maybe pay a little bit of money for your business up front, but put most of you know, the proceeds you get from the sale um, on an earnout because they know that you're critical to the business. And that means that you have to stay and achieve lots of milestones in order to get paid up front. That's, you know, the, 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 an earn out is the enemy for any entrepreneur that, you know, you want your money up front when you get acquired because you lose control of, of, the, of the outcome, obviously, when you become a you know, division of or an employee of another company. The better way to get acquired, of course, is to have a product, some sort of tangible, um, you know, entity that, that is less dependent on you personally. And that's why all the work your, your customers are doing at the EMIT is so critical, systematizing their business, uh, you know, working on that in so that you have a, an operations manual for your company that you can either program technology or hire you know, rank-and-file employees to deliver without you personally overseeing it. That is such a critical component because once, um, once you can step yourself out of the delivery of the product or service because the company has an operations manual and a, and a to-do list on all the tasks that you have to do, um, and an acquirer can look at that business and say, okay, it's not so dependent on the owner. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm willing to pay money up front. And perhaps I'll, I'll agree to a smaller earnout component, a shorter transition period, et cetera. So uh, uh, service businesses can be sold. You just have to put in the, the very hard work in systematizing the service business to a point that someone else can run it other than you, the owner. So, okay, that, that's great, and, and, and I absolutely agree with you that, you know, it, it's kind of the beautiful uh, merging of what, what you are bringing forth in, in the book, Built to Sell, and what we do here at EMIP. Um, so, so thank you for sort of bringing that um, to the table here. I, I, I'm, I'm interested, though, in another element of this idea when you stop taking on other projects for the purpose of building a business that you're going to sell. You talk in your book about a two-year financial strategy of uh, increasing the, the uh, financial performance and uh, business performance over a two-year period of time. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's important, what one can expect during that uh, two-year period of time, and, and how do you know you're, you're, you're absolutely ready to make that commitment to go, you know, full bore into these two years. And I'm, I'm assuming these are the two years prior to uh, the actual uh, putting your business uh, on the market. Yes. What you need to demonstrate to an acquirer is that once you've identified your product that scales, teachable, repeatable, valuable, think of the school photographer, school photography company, you know, in comparison to the average photographer. Once you've identified that, an acquirer is going to need to know that that product has got longevity and legs and, and desire in the marketplace. And so by showing over a two-year run that not only have you identified your product, but it's proven in the marketplace. Most businesses that I've seen um, continue to operate and offer lots of different services and products. And so if you, if you immediately make the switch and just focus on one product, um, you, you have to give your business a time to start to build up revenue in that one product so that you can show a profitable growing business isolating that one product. Mm-hmm. If, if 
on the alternative, you've been focusing on a single scalable product for two years, then you don't need to go through the process of, 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 of a two-year run rate. But most businesses really need to, A, start to uh, hone in on what their product or service is going to be that makes them scalable, and B, show a run rate. And in, in, in many ways, it will actually save listeners' time because if you don't do the work up front in putting, identifying your scalable product and putting in the two years up front, the only way someone will buy your business is on a three, four, or five-year earnout. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on one stretch, you may sell your company, lose control, and be stuck working for a big company for five years to get your money out. Whereas on the other, you know, in my view, a more palatable option is to do the heavy lifting up front, spend the two years and get your cash or at least the majority of your money up front and then have the earn out as gravy uh, down, downstream. But, but in many ways, you're sort of saving three years by mm-hmm. investing two up front. And I, and I would guess that during those two years as well, it's a, a really good test of whether or not you've got your you know, what we would call turnkey operation in place, whether or not everything can work without you um, being involved, although I imagine there would be great temptation to jump in and, and you know, kind of get back into the business during that critical two-year period of time. Um, but it sounds as if it could be um, a period where you're testing your model to make sure that it works and that you are, in fact, able to build the business and increase revenue over that period of time. At the same time, you mentioned that uh, business owners often find that their quality of life actually improves during that two-year period of time. That's always something encouraging to hear. So tell us about that. Yeah. You know, I went in my research company. Um, I My name was on the door. It was called Warlow, which is my surname. And partly as a result of that, partly because I hadn't done the heavy lifting to kind of systematize my business, all of our clients asked for me. I had hired people and mm-hmm. tried to kind of give them fancy titles and, and make make them you know, look like the experts. But at the end of the day, clients continued to ask for me, which I found enormously frustrating. I'd find myself on an airplane more days than not to go see these clients. And when anything went off the rails, I was personally the guy they called. And so I was dealing with you know, enormous headaches, too many clients. I wasn't able to delegate the client work to, uh, to anyone because they wanted me to personally oversee it. And my business reached a plateau where I just ran out of hours in the day and I couldn't personally be stretched any thinner. The project quality slipped, um, deadlines, you know, pushed, and I was just doing crappy work for too many people. And, you know, that's the kind of world I found myself in when I wanted to sell my company. It wasn't pretty. Um, you know, cash flow was lumpy. There were months where we had good cash flow. There were months where we had terrible cash flow because I was charging after, you know, rendering the service of the work. Not a good, not a good place to be. But when I made some of these changes, um, you know, picking a product, starting to charge up front, um, hiring salespeople, my quality of life went up enormously. Suddenly, you know, because we were doing one thing really well, suddenly my employees got really good at it because it was all we did, right? Uh, you know, David Beckham's a great soccer player because he's been playing for 22 years or whatever it is, and he's great at what he does because he does one thing. Um, 
we were charging up front, so my cash flow kind of concerns went away. Um, you know, when my clients had a problem, they weren't now calling me all the time because I wasn't the one who sold it to them. There were other people that they were calling in my in my company when when they ran into you know the inevitable glitches along the way. So, so you're right, Karen. I mean, my quality of life personally as the owner of the business um, went up enormously once I'd you know made these changes. And of course, that just gives you so much more leverage if after you know a real uptick in quality of life, um, and you do get approached by someone to buy your business. You just have enormous leverage in the negotiation process because you don't have to sell it. Or you don't, you know, you're not you're not so burnt out and emotionally racked that, you know, you feel like you have to sell. Um, you've got a great business with, you know, cash flow positive and happy customers, happy employees. You can kind of wait and dictate terms and make sure that that you get, you know, a good price for your business because, you know, you don't feel like you have to sell it. So, um, you know, making some of these changes, although arduous and, and hard in some cases, I think has enormous downstream impact. Well, yeah, and I actually think that's just the perfect way to end our discussion today, that uh, the idea of gaining more life by, you know, following the steps that you've outlined here, most particularly the one that we've been talking about today, in terms of just stopping the uh, acceptance of all of those outside projects that are outside your um, your standard service offering. So, John, I want to thank you again so much for being with us today. The book is called Built to Sell by John Marlow, and uh, he has been very gracious to extend um, a great offer for the Emith community. You can download his ebook, The Model for Selling Your Business, which will introduce you to some of the ideas from Built to Sell. But even better, you're going to find a link on this podcast post in our blog and in our resources section of the emith.com website to purchase the book, Built to Sell, with an exclusive $5 discount. So thank you again, John, for extending that to our Emith community. My pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of another Emith Your Business podcast. And uh, you're going to find John online at builttosell.com. And as always, please visit us online at emith.com. Next time, we'll be delving into uh, the next step of this eight step process launch a long-term incentive plan for managers. This is going to be a really hot topic, so please join us for that one. Again, John, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you next time. 